Welcome to Marrow Masters Season 8, sponsored by Omeris Corporation and Insight. The National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, established in 1992, strives to help patients, caregivers, and families cope with the psychosocial challenges of bone marrow and stem cell transplant from diagnosis through survivorship. Season 8 of our show focuses on clinical trials. We're covering how to find them, what to expect, and how survivors have benefited from them. We also talk to healthcare professionals about how these oncology clinical trials are conducted and monitored safely. Our goal is to answer as many of your questions as possible. Here's your host, Executive Director of the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, Peggy Burkhart. Welcome, everyone. Today we have with us Dr. Mark Schroeder, Associate Professor of Medicine, the Washington University School of Medicine Division of Oncology. Dr. Schroeder is going to educate us today about clinical trials. Hello, Dr. Schroeder. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Peggy. Happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Great. So let's get started. Let's talk about some different types of clinical research, the phases of study, and the safety of clinical trials. So clinical research studies are so important for the advancement of therapies to treat cancer. Um, none of the therapies that we have currently that we consider standards for the treatment of cancer would have been possible to develop without clinical study. And it's because of millions of patients participating in clinical research studies that we have some of the really cutting edge therapies of today. When we talk about clinical trials, there's really two main types of clinical research. One would be a interventional study. So a study that means we're going to give a patient or participant a treatment and see if it has an effect. Uh, the other type of clinical research might be a non-interventional study. So maybe we're just following patients to see how their disease progresses with the standard treatments that we already have available. These are the two main types of clinical research, and they have implications for whether a patient may want to participate in a study. A non-interventional study in general requires less effort from a patient than an interventional study. And there's generally less risk for non-interventional studies. In general, they might be studies geared at surveys or having researchers look through the medical record. Interventional studies, of course, there's uh, intervention. It could be a drug. It could be some type of procedure or device that's being studied uh, to try and either improve uh, treatments for cancer or maybe address some of the toxicities that happen with treatments. When we talk about the stages of research, clinical trials are divided into multiple stages, kind of from the early infancy of developing a therapy to even after a therapy has been approved by the FDA or regulatory body that approves treatments to monitor for efficacy and side effects. This earliest phase of clinical research is even before it gets into humans. It's kind of the preclinical studies where the drugs are being tested in models of cancer, and we're evaluating toxicities in these models that are similar to humans, but they have a lot of limitations. The next phase of a study is called a phase one study. Oftentimes in phase one studies, drugs that are completely new to humans are being tested. And in cancer patients, Sometimes these drugs showed really promising results in early studies in animals. And so the phase one study is trying to figure out what's the right dose for that drug in humans. 
And it's also primarily geared to look at what are the associated toxicities. And current design of these early studies is trying to optimize, you know, trying to pick the right dose to start at in patients. Because if you're a cancer patient and you've already gone through a lot of treatments and you're looking for a treatment that might have effect, you may not want to participate in a study that's going to uh, study a very low dose or homeopathic dose of a treatment with no potential for efficacy. In general, phase one studies are trying to find the right dose, but the modern design to these studies is using some algorithms to try and predict what the best dose of these drugs to start at that may have efficacy with less toxicity in patients. So even in phase one studies that are trying to find the right dose and look at toxicity, there could be benefits in terms of the effect of the treatment on patients with cancer. After a drug gets through a phase one study, the next phase is called a phase two study. Phase two studies are taking the dose of the drug that they found to be safe in a handful of patients that were in the phase one and testing that phase two dose or that dose that they think is safe to see if it has an effect, usually looking at, say, responses in cancer or looking at uh, potentially how long the effect is on keeping the cancer at bay. Phase two studies in general enroll more patients than phase one. A phase two study potentially has the benefit of a known dose and a known toxicity profile, but it's still being monitored for some of the potential toxic effects of the therapy. But as a patient, a phase two study in general may have more chance of having access to a effective therapy than say a phase one study. Dr. Schroeder, that's so interesting to me about more patients being involved in phase two. I did not realize that. So I'm going to ask now, what goes on in phase three? Yeah, so the next kind of logical progression for the development of, of a drug, and just to kind of put this in perspective, this phase one and phase two studies of drugs that are going through this development pathway to ultimately be approved and then be able to be used in the treatment of cancer, this can take many years to actually get patients to accrue to these studies, find the right dose, check to see if effective but the phase three are usually the largest studies. Those are the studies that are designed around what, say, the FDA, the regulatory body that approves drugs in, say, the United States, uh, would want to see to guarantee that a drug is safe and effective in treating a cancer. And so phase three studies are often designed to test a drug and compare it to what we feel is the best therapy for the cancer. Sometimes those phase three studies, they may be uh, the initial treatment of a cancer, or it may be in a cancer that's relapsed, but these are large, usually hundreds of patients, large type of studies that are conducted across multiple cancer centers. Um, and the results are pooled and can eventually lead to the approval of a drug to treat a cancer if it's shown to be better than the standard treatment. These studies are often designed where they're randomized, where a patient doesn't necessarily have a choice. Do I get the promising new treatment or do I get the standard treatment? Um, and that can be sometimes 
daunting for patients to have to consider that I don't have a choice in, in my therapy. But we often talk with patients and, and explain to them that in their situation, when they're posed, you know, with the participation in a phase three study, that really we don't know what the best treatment is. And we think that both of the treatments could be effective and there could be a potential benefit to being on either of the arms. Okay, well, that's important. I think that kind of leads right into the myths. I think it's important that we discuss what people are afraid of. And I think you're already tackling that. Yeah, I mean, there's a wide spectrum of patients that I see that uh, some patients come into clinic and they are they're sure that they would never want to participate in a research study because um, they've heard that, you know, the study is only going to benefit the researcher or the organization or, or the drug companies. It's not true. As I talked about, there are phases. So in terms of benefit for the patient, potentially the biggest benefit for patients are in studies that are testing the effect or the efficacy of a drug. If a patient has cancer that's really refractory to other treatments and none of the standard treatments have benefit to them, then perhaps an early uh, study where there's a promising uh, drug in early development could be attractive to patients. And the early studies guarantee that you're going to get the drug. Some patients come and they have concerns about the later studies that, well, I'm going to get a placebo, you know, no matter what, and, and it's not going to be effective for me. And I would say to counter that argument for patients with cancer is that the majority, almost all studies for treating patients with cancer have what's called active control arm. So whether you're on the study treatment or you're on the control arm, which is the standard treatment, patients would be getting active treatments. And if the study's designed where it's a placebo, it means that patients that are on that placebo arm are still getting a treatment for their cancer, whereas the experimental arm would have the study drug plus the same treatment as the placebo arm. So they're trying to see if the drug combined with another common regimen might improve the efficacy and outcomes. There's also a lot of concern, especially now as, as the cost of treatment for cancer has really skyrocketed with a lot of new treatments available. Is how, much, how much would a clinical trial cost me? And it's going to cost too much. When studies are in early development, the sponsors of the studies will provide the treatment usually for free. So it doesn't cost the patients for the treatment, but studies are designed that there are other costs that are considered standard or often billed to insurance. So the actual cost in terms of financial is usually covered by a study for the experimental parts of the study. And then there's, of course, you know, the cost of time and availability for a study. A lot of research studies compared to standard of care may be following patients a little bit more closely. That could be, though, you know, a benefit where you're checking in with your oncologist and the study team more frequently. You're having close monitoring. Um, so things don't fall through the crack, uh, potentially, when you're on a research study compared to a standard treatment. And then some people have the perception that a drug that's already approved by, say, the FDA is going to be better than anything experimental. And, you know, I brought up at the beginning that all of the therapies that we have for 
cancer patients now have been based on clinical trials. So you could, as a patient, if you had uh, an indefinite time to wait for a therapy, you could wait the 10, 15 years that it takes for a new drug to come to market and be approved. But the benefit of clinical studies in cancer is that you potentially have access to drugs that are going to be very active in your cancer prior to them being approved. And the studies, again, are designed with the rationale and the evidence prior to starting a study that the treatment could be better than what is already approved. And that's how it's being tested. That is so important. Everything you just said, uh, I can't thank you enough for hitting on that, Dr. Schroeder. I do have a question. So you were saying that the cost is almost always covered. Is that including all three phases? If it's a type of study that's using a drug to treat cancer, that drug typically is provided by the study. And that would be provided across the phase one through phase three studies. Um, The things that are not typically covered that are, say, a patient would normally come in for a blood test if they were on a a standard treatment, that may not be covered by uh, clinical research studies. There are some studies that do cover the routine blood work and cost. Those are usually later studies when they're a larger phase three. They might encompass every single cost that a patient incurs, but most studies are still sending some of the standard costs to insurance or the patients to pay for. That's an important caveat for sure. Um, There are some studies that will compensate uh, participants for travel or time or lodging. Those may be additional benefits to participating in a research study. Absolutely. We interviewed a patient the other day who went on and on about getting the VIP treatment. And I think you touched on that, you know, the extra calls, the extra blood work. And that seems to be really important to patients and a a really big reason to consider uh, these clinical trials. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, I mean, part of that, yes, is is ensuring that the study is conducted safely, but it does have, I think, a benefit to patients and ensures that every single patient on that study is being treated the same. Um, unfortunately, you know, that doesn't happen all the time uh, with the treatment of oncology and practice can vary between oncologists, even at the same center or across treatment areas. Um, but a study tries to standardize that and make it kind of universally applied to all patients. It brings up another important point about studies is that the development of drugs and clinical research is really dependent on the type of patients who volunteer for the studies. And it's so important to have a diverse population of patients be willing to undergo treatment on studies so that a drug is not just approved and tested in a very small you know, type of patient. We really want diversity in the research to get the most evidence and the best evidence of benefit for treatment across a wide spectrum of patients with cancer. Oh, that's a great point. So, Dr. Schroeder, should we talk more about the efficacy of the studies? Yeah, um, you know, that's, I think, often top of mind for patients. Um, Some patients do participate in non-interventional studies just as altruistic act um, that they're going to benefit somebody. And that does motivate some patients to participate in studies. But there's nothing wrong with a participant, you know, primarily being motivated by what's the efficacy going to be. And I think it's hard to gauge that as a patient, right? 
some of the feedback that you can garner from your oncologist and your treatment team about potential studies is, well, what has been found out about this drug that you want to test before I participate? What do we know about it? Uh, that will help to gauge some of the potential for efficacy. So in the early phase studies, phase one studies, a lot of times we may not know the efficacy of the drug in humans, or maybe the drug has been tested in a different type of patient and they're using it in totally new disease uh, to see if it's effective. So in that case, it's really hard to gauge whether a drug might be effective. But as you gauge phase two or phase three studies, those are type of research studies where there is some signal or some sign of efficacy. It's usually in a small population of patients or humans that have participated in the prior study. And you have some idea what might be the toxicities of the treatment. So the best way to gauge if a study is going to work for you, I think, is really to uh, interrogate the study with the study personnel. And all studies conducted in the U.S. have a principal investigator, a scientist or oncologist, and that oncologist or scientist should be available or their team available to kind of ask and answer questions about the study. We don't always know if a drug is going to be effective, and especially in the uh, phase three studies that are what are called placebo control, where it's a randomized study, the investigator, all the patients, even the pharmacist dispensing the medications, nobody knows who's getting uh, the treatment or not. And that's done so that those are the best studies to really determine without bias, without somebody changing the results on an assessment that a drug really works. So those studies are hard to gauge whether a treatment is working. But the phase two studies, your oncologist or the study team should give some idea of, well, this is the effect we might think. This might be the benefit of participating. Okay. Phase one studies in general are going to have less chance for efficacy than a more advanced phase of study. Okay. Thank you for explaining that. So let's move on. Talking about different centers across the nation, why are studies available at certain centers? And if someone doesn't have a study available to them, should they consider traveling to possibly participate? Yeah, it's a great question, Peggy. Um, you know, unfortunately, not, not all patients have the ability to travel across multiple centers. One of the advantages to being treated at an academic center, which, you know, that's where I am, and we have a large portfolio of clinical research studies. We can't open every single study. You know, cancer is a common problem, but as we kind of delve into the different subtypes of cancer, it becomes a pretty rare disease in some instances and for patients. So some studies, because the disease can become so, so rare or the line of therapy that the drugs are being tested in, we need a lot of patients to study it, are done across multiple centers. So whether you travel to a center in California or Missouri or New York, it's the same drug, the same study at that center. And so you may be able to uh, find a center that's closer to you that's participating in the same studies uh, halfway across the United States. There's also studies that are specific just for a center. Um, those studies are usually smaller 
And they're usually the type of studies that are phase one and phase two, where there's some potential evidence of effect, but you could only access that study at one particular center. The best way to find out what studies might be available to you is, I think, number one, ask your oncologist, well, are there any potential research studies? And you can also do some investigation on your own. There's a resource called clinicaltrials.gov where every single study um, in the United States is registered. And you can search that database based on your diagnosis. And it will tell you what studies are available for your diagnosis and who is the contact for the study. And as a patient, if you want to be proactive, which I think is the best type of patient to be, is to do some investigation and be proactive about it, you can reach out to the centers that have potential studies. Now, most of those centers, they'll be able to give information that's on that website of clinicaltrials.gov, but the actual selection process to participate in the study would require that the patients have to travel to that center to determine if they're eligible for the study. But before traveling to the center, I think it's a, a great idea for patients or their oncologists to investigate is this study, is it actively recruiting patients? Is there a chance that me as the patient that I'm going to be treated on the study? Because there may be something in their history for any research study because of trying to um, ensure safety. There's a long list usually of things that a patient has to have and then a things that exclude them or that we don't want them to have to make the study treatment safe and to increase the chance that it's effective. Well, very good. Wow, this has been a lot of information. Thank you so much. So Dr. Schroeder, you shared so much great information today about clinical trials, and I know you have a lot of knowledge and experience regarding multiple myeloma. Can you talk more specifically about this? Yeah. Overall, multiple myeloma is a relatively rare cancer, but it's a good example of how treatment um, has changed substantially through the help of many, many patients participating in clinical research studies. And it's because of many patients participating in clinical research that we have now many new drugs approved just within the last 10 years for multiple myeloma. And because of those new drugs, the outlook and the survival of patients of myeloma has increased. But it's a rapidly changing treatment landscape for patients with multiple myeloma. In general, multiple myeloma is a cancer that's not curable, but patients can live a long time with the disease. And because of this and because survival is improving with treatments, you know, the treatments that we currently have available are trying to be improved and they're trying to be moved earlier on into the treatment of myeloma. One example are immunotherapies. We've heard a lot about, I think, in the news and the press about immunotherapies. A Nobel Prize in Medicine was awarded for some of the basic research around immunotherapies. And some of these most promising therapies have also been adopted to treat multiple myeloma. And these immunotherapies, we know in patients with multiple myeloma that has been refractory to every single treatment that the FDA has approved for the cancer, they can work in patients with multiple myeloma. They can lead to remissions and they can improve uh, patients' life expectancy uh, with the cancer. We don't know if those new immunotherapies are going to cure the cancer, but the current clinical research is focused on trying to 
move those treatments earlier in the course of treatment of patients with myeloma. So for example, a treatment that is used after four or five different treatments for myeloma would be moved up to treat a patient maybe who's newly diagnosed or who's just after transplant to try and improve responses, deepen responses, and hopefully improve survival for patients with myeloma. So it's a very promising time. I'm very optimistic about the therapies that are in development for multiple myeloma. Two of the most common immunotherapies that you know have been widely studied are called bispecific antibodies and CAR T-cells or chimeric antigen receptor T-cells. One is using an infusion of a protein that stimulates your immune cells called T-cells to attack the myeloma cancer. The other is actually taking your own immune cells out of your blood and genetically altering them to attack the cancer. And both of those are very promising immunotherapies now being studied earlier in the treatment of myeloma. And the only way to access those new therapies that are very promising in somebody who's really refractory to treatment is to participate in a clinical trial if you want access to those therapy early in the treatment for your cancer. It's so exciting to hear what's going on with multiple myeloma. When we do a lunch and learn or a program on this, the attendance is off the charts. So I really appreciate you addressing this and offering all this hope and promise for this disease state. Oh my goodness. Wow. We covered a lot. So we're going to wrap things up, Dr. Schroeder. Any final words? Well, I mean, I could end with uh, with an anecdote maybe of a, of a patient. You know, I mean, there's caveats to any story about an individual patient. Um, oftentimes when you're presented as a patient, I think with the results of a clinical trial that your doctor says, look, this clinical trial said that this percent of patients are going to respond to this treatment. You really want to know if it applies to you. And there's really, uh, there's no way for an oncologist to look at a patient and necessarily say 100% that this treatment's going to work. So a lot of it is faith in the oncologist. And then if you participate in studies, it's faith in the study that the treatment has been tested and validated. And there's lots of checks and balances in the design of studies and make sure that they are safe for patients and that we try to optimize the chance that they respond. So it brings me to a patient that I had that had multiple myeloma, had gone through a stem cell transplant, had gone through a couple other treatments for multiple myeloma. And we did have, we had other options for treating the myeloma that would be considered standard. And for her, you know, the estimate was, well, maybe, you know, these other treatments could provide a six month uh, or 12 month time before the cancer might progress or come back. You might need another treatment. But in general, for a cancer like myeloma, as you get through further lines of treatment, the response is less and less. And she decided to participate in a early study of uh, new immunotherapy, a bispecific antibody therapy. And she's now over two years um, from starting on that treatment, still on intermittent treatments and her disease has become undetectable. She's had a complete response and she's living a good life and uh, in has had a really big benefit from participation in clinical research studies. It's the only way that we are going to advance the treatment for cancer. It's the only way that we are going to end up curing cancers that we now aren't sure that we can cure, like multiple myeloma. And I'm so thankful that you invited me to talk about this very important 
topic, and I hope that it's informative to the listeners and the patients who tune into this. Oh, Dr. Schroeder, you don't have to worry about that. This is going to be helping a lot of people, I can assure you. And I thank you so much again for your time and your knowledge and just your wonderful way of presenting this today. Thank you, Peggy. Thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure. And I would like to also thank the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link for the opportunity to educate people about clinical trials. Thank you. This has been the Marrow Masters Podcast. If you know someone who would benefit from the information in our show, please share this episode with them via text, email, or social media. Don't miss an episode of our show. Follow the Marrow Masters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now. To connect with the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, visit nbmtlink.org or follow the link in our show notes. The Marrow Masters Podcast is produced by Jagged Detroit Podcasts.